Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. How has education shaped roles for girls and women from the past? So there were a couple of sort of um, changes in the way that people thought about education at the start of the 20th century. Part of it was uh, a move away from the three R's, which were reading, writing and arithmetic. Most colonists and Māori valued education and were setting up schools and sending their children to them, boys and girls. To the present. I do feel like there's quite a few young women like wanting to enter into the legal profession but I also feel like it is still dominated by Pākehā males. Legally people have equal rights. I think that how things play out in everyday life, women don't necessarily get an equal share of the pie, they don't get an equal share of the airtime. You know we talk about colour blindness but perhaps there's also a gender blindness. Um, my name's Te Uranga and it's, you know, very, very mouldy. Lecturers would find it hard to, like, say my name or call on me and I don't feel like I would have as much confidence either to speak out in the class. Hi, I'm Sonia Sly and you're listening to Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. We've arrived at episode 7 and this time we're looking at how education has played out for girls and women through our history. Because while we think that we've moved forward, that might not be entirely the case. Here's a clip from Archives New Zealand from a drama series called What They Said at the Time When Women Got the Vote. Mr Speaker... We are told that woman's place is in her household amongst her children. I do not for one moment deny that. It is quite true. That is woman's sphere. And she fills it in a manner which is a credit to herself and a blessing to us all. (laughs) But is that a reason why she should be excluded from the discussion of larger questions? And that's an actor playing Sir John Hall. He was a pro-suffragist and worked very closely with Kate Shepherd. He served as Premier of New Zealand. And it was Hall who rolled out that 270-metre-long suffrage petition down the aisle of the chamber the day it was passed into legislation more than a century ago. But while women did gain the right to vote, it took some time before things would really change, which is kind of why we're doing this series. So roles for boys and girls were and still are quite deeply ingrained in our nation's psyche. And you could argue that the same still stands today. But before we get on to our ABCs, I headed to Te Papa, where I met up with... Katie Cooper. OK, and what's your role here at Te Papa? History curator. We started by looking at a recipe book, which might sound a little weird when we're delving into education, 
but hold tight because this is pretty significant. So it was made by uh, Joyce Weber when she was at Mount Cook Girls School in 1925. Back when girls were heading to school, not long after women got the vote, lo and behold, the education was, wait for it, learning to make the perfect scone. She was in standard five, so that's about form one. She was about 11 years old, learning skills that would set her up for life. Well, it's beautifully handwritten in, in black ink. The recipe book itself is on plain brown cardboard and it, it's obviously been well worn. The, and the front cover here has got the list of sort of theoretical lessons that she learned, the composition of an egg. Um, Which is what? Oh gosh, I don't know. Other than the, <laughs> doesn't say. I'd have oh. to go back through her notes and have a look. How but. interesting. It's something that I don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah. mm. um, rules for cake making, reasons for cooking food. Reasons for cooking food. <laughs> and then there's the practical element as well. So recipes for scones and cakes and soups and this one's for baking powder bread. I did see there was one in there for sausage rolls. Oh, um, back then. <laughs> yeah, wow. sponge cakes and shortcakes. All the things a girl needs to know to equip her for life. FYI, as the queen of sunken, undercooked cakes, maybe I could have done with a few crucial baking lessons. But the reason to Papa have kept this item... It's kind of indicative of the types of lessons that young stu- female students in New Zealand would have been expected to participate in. And according to Katie, that's because... There were a couple of changes in the way that people thought about education at the start of the 20th century. Part of it was a move away from the three R's, which were reading, writing and arithmetic. I mean, obviously she can read and she can write. Yes. But girls back then weren't taught mathematics. There was a real focus on practical uh, education, cooking and sewing for female students and woodwork and metalwork for male students. And even at secondary school, there was this real emphasis on home science and that did take priority over other forms of science, things like physics and chemistry. So those were thought to be too taxing for female students. Which just sounds ridiculous by today's standards. And that had a really long legacy. The prioritisation of home science over other forms of science disadvantaged females when they were entering employment later in the 20th century. It meant that they were disadvantaged in what was increasingly becoming a scientific, technical world. So sewing machines developed so that they were commercially available by sometime in the 1850s worldwide. In New Zealand, they seem to have been coming into the country from around 1860 in quite large numbers. This is Jane Malthus, who you might have heard in episode five talking about crotchless bloomers and public facilities for women. But this time we're sticking to the practical domestic arts and looking at the sewing machine, because every girl should have one. So they are quite expensive. Fathers bought sewing machines for daughters, husbands for wives. They would have been equivalent maybe to eight to 10 weeks wages for a young woman seamstress. Singer certainly had a pay-as-you-go system. And here I was, thinking it was a modern-day thing. Who would have thought? And many homes would have sewing machines of some kind, back at a time when people were making their own clothes. For some girls, learning to sew was part of their education. Once people realise, you know, how good they are for speeding up the process of stitching anything, then they start to be used for um, especially the long straight seams of garments. Now I sent you a photo of an ornate looking sewing machine that's held by the Waikato Museum. It looked like it was probably a 
a simple lock stitch machine, even though it was quite ornately decorated. That putting on of gold patterning, for example, was something that the Singer Company not so much started but certainly perfected and everybody copied that because they wanted to compete. Once sewing machines came along, outerwear, dresses, got way more fancy. You could do so much more. Which is important because, as we explored in the episode that looks at the body, New Zealand women were fashionable. But these machines also helped women to become employable. If you knew how to sew, you could get a job in a factory perhaps. So, in that way, I suppose there are different ways to look at education. In New Zealand, primary education became compulsory in um, the late 1870s. Here's Stephanie Lash from Archives New Zealand, who you've heard throughout the series. But by 1893, safe to say that many women from the older generations had not all been to school. Many had been schooled at home, and so they did have the, you know, the basics of education. They did have reading and writing. But also many women were migrants to New Zealand, and they'd come from the you know, countries of Great Britain, where primary education wasn't yet compulsory. Plenty of the women, um, you know, especially if they had come from families that were poorer, had been required to work when they were children, or education hadn't been you know, a priority, especially because they were girls. And that in itself is interesting. Access to education varied across different parts of Europe. It was also dependent on how working class or middle class you were. In some places, that would determine the quality of your education, However, back in New Zealand, things were also different, more open in some ways, but restrictive in others. One of the features of New Zealand in the 19th century was that A, schools were important and all over the place. Professor Charlotte MacDonald from the School of History, Political Science and Philosophy at Victoria University. When the first... CMS missionaries arrived in the Bay of Islands, the first thing they do is set up schools. There's a long history of education being part of 19th century history. 1840s on, when Europeans arrive as settlers and colonists, they're mostly young, having children. Which is another incentive to set up schools and make them accessible. Boys and girls were attending these schools. So this is a distinctive thing about colonial New Zealand, is that education's really big and it's much more accessible to most people. High schools get set up and who goes to high schools and why should you educate people beyond the age of 12? That becomes a big question. You know enough by the age of 12 to go off and do things. I had to think what my life would have looked like if I had left school at 12. But if you're being set up to be in the kitchen baking scones, then... Yeah, sure. Maybe you do know enough to get on with life. The other thing is, the bigger the family, the more expensive it was. And some families just couldn't afford to keep their kids at school. If you look at Otago, Scottish settlement, education really strong. They set up Otago girls and boys high schools almost at the same time. The University of Otago, the first university set up in New Zealand, is set up with the possibility of young men and young women attending as students, not the case in England, and young women as students being able to study and get degrees. So that's before the vote? This is 1870s, this is long before the vote. So in England, the first women who could study at Oxford or Cambridge were able to study, but they were not able to gain their degrees because they were women. That definitely puts things into perspective. 
but it's not as clear-cut as you'd think. In the 19th century, education in New Zealand was segregated. There were schools for Pākehā and for Māori. They were called native schools. Back to Katie. The Native School Act, I think, was passed in 1867, um, and then they were called Native Schools until 1947, and then they switched to Māori schools. So it was right through the first half of the 20th century. And do you know what they were being taught? Yeah, so it was quite a practical-oriented course as well, in the same way that students in other schools were being taught. There was an emphasis on cooking and woodwork as well for girls and boys respectively and from the 1940s they did have model, model cottages where um, they would build a small cottage on the school grounds and then to show you know what the sort of art of European living looked like I guess. They did also from the 1930s um, teach some aspects of Māori art and culture. Growing up with stories about my father and others going to the native school. This is Libby Hakaraya, who spoke in the last episode about her great-great-great-grandmother, Meraduhia, or Mary Bevan, as she was also called. There's no doubt that there was a racist policy in place as well, you know, um, and it continues today. It had the name native, which was pejorative even then. The assimilation practices were still to come. So on one hand, you choose not to go to a school, what are your choices then? You know, manual manual labour and um, our people were looking to get out of poverty. There were schools already running with the mission schools um, that a lot of my family went to or through Hadfield and the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church. I mean, it was about getting out of poverty because access to all the things that, you know, had kept you well, access to food, waterways for... were rapidly diminishing and also... You know, sickness was, you know, a monumentally huge mm. thing. And I wonder, because of the things that she and her her siblings knew about Rungawa Māori practices. Traditional Māori healing. And if you recall from the last episode, people would come to visit her great-great-grandmother as a medicine woman. Maybe that also enabled her to have status in, in you know, in a Pākehā community. Because the sicknesses were a scourge of not just Māori, but, you know, it wasn't easy. I don't think the the years that we're talking about, I mean, she died 46, so she actually died very young. Mm. So, yeah, back to the native schools. Of course you're going to try to elevate the next generation, give them whatever they need to. Mm. We do that today. In Nōtaki, you know, in my lifetime, I've seen the native school change to become the first Māori university in New Zealand. We are told that women are impulsive and illogical intellectually unfit, that their intellect does not qualify them for dealing with larger questions. Which we all know isn't true. And Sir John Hall didn't believe that either. Back to Charlotte MacDonald, because I want to find out whether a woman's level of education in New Zealand enabled her to push more actively for the vote, along with other rights. Young women have greater skills reading, writing, knowing about things, uh, and therefore the means to think, form their own views, assess things and express themselves as having a considered view. Because in education, it extends your mind to do that. So most women who were young women who were born in New Zealand or came to New Zealand as, as young children and then gained an education did not do domestic service 
So that was the main work available for young women. But most young women who grew up in New Zealand didn't want to do that. And they went off and they worked in shops, they worked in offices, they became teachers themselves because this was a growing population, lots of children, schools developing, so school teaching was important and there were lots of pupil teachers. So essentially you got through school and then you became a teacher to young kids. So education was a real place of getting on in life. And, of course, the same goes for today. But as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't necessarily easy to climb that ladder to success. There were still barriers for women, even those who managed to make it to university. Like for Ethel Benjamin, she was the first woman to graduate in law within the British Empire in 1897. That's four years after women won the right to vote here. Let's head to author, feminist and local body politician, Sandra Coney, who you've also heard through the series. Well, she must have been a very determined young woman, I would say. And also, and invariably, when you... These women that were the trailblazers very often did have people that believed in them and supported them and helped them to get on. So hopefully Ethel had some people that would have um, bought her books out of the library or enabled her to access the material that she needed. I mean, the other thing with her, that she was never invited to the Law Society annual dinners. While she could study law, that rejection is an outright admission that her presence is unwanted. Should it surprise us that Russell McVeigh's got problems in the year 2018, the law profession, you would think it would be at the vanguard of acknowledging women's equality, but that has not been the case. And every stage of like women becoming judges, women in the family court, um, all those have had to be milestones that women have fought for. Women to be jurors, that was a long struggle. You know, nothing was handed out on a plate for women. And the same kinds of barriers were in place for the first woman in New Zealand to attend medical school. Emily Cedarberg was the first woman to qualify in 1896, so it's in the same period as Ethel Benjamin. You know how boys can be boys? Well, they took it upon themselves to make her time at medical school pretty unbearable. They'd be in the dissecting room. Throwing pieces of flesh at her. The women that followed her at Otago Medical School, whenever apparently they said something that was considered to be, you know, silly, or the men would hoot and cat call and actually use pea shooters against the women. And we'll come back to Sandra shortly to hear more about the barriers that she faced during her years at university. Next up, Elizabeth Taylor. And no, she wasn't named after the actress, but someone closer to home. I was named after the woman we're talking about, right? Elizabeth, my grandmother. Why did your parents name you after her? Because my mother was so devoted to her mother. Elizabeth is a sprightly 88-year-old in Wellington and education has been important in her family along with women's suffrage, which we'll get to in just a bit. First, though... There was an exposition, maybe in Dunedin, about 1901, when a whole lot of things would have been sent. There were two of those pianos and my grandfather bought one which now sits in Elizabeth's dining room beside the ranch sliders. The piano is in immaculate condition, but Elizabeth tells me the top has been replaced after accidentally catching a light. You'd never guess, though. And the other one was bought by the um, Rutherford family, I think. My friend Cynthia is 
one of those Rutherfords, and she said, oh, she said, I've seen its twin. <laughs> and it is literally the same piano. But the reason the piano was important to the family is because it's so much part of the culture and education at the time. In those days, these kids were all taught music, violin, piano. They read Shakespeare around the dining room table. I mean, it's just a different world. Elizabeth Allison married Thomas Edward Taylor. He was a clerk and leading prohibitionist who was later active in public life. He was a member of the House of Representatives, what was the forerunner to the parliament that we have today. They were a middle-class family with very religious views. They lived in Christchurch, the centre for the suffrage movement. Elizabeth Allison had even attended the very first meeting for the National Council of Women, founded by Kate Shepherd and collected signatures for the petition. I lived with her for a whole term once when they had the lovely house up at Kashmir. They went to the Kashmir Primary School, could just run up the hill. The dining room table, underneath she'd ring the bell and the girl would come in from the kitchen and clear the dishes away. And Elizabeth recalls the story behind how she came to work for the family. My grandfather went down to Littleton. They needed extra help or something. And he went down when there was a boat coming in and looked around and for a girl to bring home to help. And he found this poor little kid called Elsie Carver. And my mother said they were so mean to her. So she was from England? Or? Yes, she came from England right. on the boat. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I kind of go, well... He, he's going down there to look for someone. What are the prerequisites, you know? Is he looking for someone oh. with this, with soft features that oh, he thinks might fit into the household without being sure? Yeah. You see, all these things I should have asked my mother. Elizabeth says that the line of women in her family are of a particular breed. They're bossy, strong women. Yes, yes, yes. And I, my mother and all her sisters, oh, my word... And she set up the free kindergarten in Christchurch. So what was her thinking behind that, do you think? Oh, well, she just wanted to make women's lives better. Her grandmother was also responsible for setting up the very first primary school in the Kashmir Hills. In her laundry room, no less. And there would have been just a bunch of little kids from the houses round about. And then finally it was put further up the hill and turned into a proper school. Would she have set it up with little tables, like desks and chairs? I, th- or I suppose. Sitting on the floor. <laughs> Elizabeth's grandparents were big on education, so all the girls were sent off, quite happily, to Christchurch Girls High, apart from one. The eldest daughter, Dorothy, was quite fragile. They sent her to Rangiruru, to the private girls' schools, because she would have a gentler education. I mean, what would that entail? Not probably the competition, not so many big bossy girls, maybe smaller classes. They all trained for something under the influence of their mother. Mum was a teacher, her sister Romla did home science. Kitty, the youngest daughter, stayed at home and looked after the household, as they did in those days. Irene did a degree and finished up as editor of the Christchurch Women's Page and the Christchurch Press. Do you think she would have set high expectations for what she wanted for her girls? Yes, but not so high that when they married, they didn't just flop into marriage. And I mean, my mother should have gone on teaching. It's just ridiculous. She would have been far better working. And what did she do instead? Oh, she just kept house. 
But now that we've looked at a little bit of history, I think it's time to shift forward because the vote gave women rights and some of those things looked much better on paper than they were in reality. I want to come back to Sandra Coney because when she was studying back in the 60s and 70s, things were still not where they should be for women. I went to the law school in Auckland University and talked to them about being able to do that with children and it quickly became very apparent that my inquiries were not welcomed. A lot of it is, I think, as simple as patch protection and I don't think people always know why they oppose women wanting to get into new avenues. It gets dressed up with some rhetoric around, you know, your obligations as a mother or women are too emotional and that kind of thing. But really, underneath it, and I think that's come out through some of the recent revelations about sexual harassment in the law profession, is about keeping women out because it enables men to get on more easily. You're listening to RNZ Podcast Beyond Kate, and we'll explore the idea of competition within the workforce in the next episode. You know, the, the culture around some of these professions has been developed, you know, often over a long period of time by men alone, and so the idea that they would have to change what they do is deeply disturbing, obviously. But things do change over time, mostly for the better. Sandra says growing up that there was less pressure for girls in some ways. In my day, girls weren't particularly expected to plan their career to the nth degree for the next several decades, so I got married when I was 17 and had children. And then I wanted to go back to university and was involved in studying the first university crash in Auckland. And that kind of shifted my perspective rather about the obstacles in the way of women and so got into the women's movement. And How did it do that for you? Uh, because of the obstacles we faced trying to set up a crash at the university where we were told that you chose between higher education or motherhood and you couldn't do both. I can't help but shake my head on that one. Some of us didn't accept that and fought it, but extraordinary obstacles were put in our way by the University Council. Even the Students' Association wasn't particularly helpful. And in what way did they object to it and for what reason? You have to remember that at that time, so this is mid-60s, women couldn't get into medical school. I think there might have been a quota system and it was difficult to get into um, law school. And There were no women doing engineering or anything like that, so women tended to do... BAs, which is what I did. There was an attitude that if you were a mother, that was it. Let's be frank here. I still feel like there's an undercurrent of this attitude that still exists today. Yes, women can and do have careers and babies, but six years ago, when I went on maternity leave, I could feel people's attitudes changing around me, that I was replaceable temporary, that I was going to give up my job like it didn't matter to me anymore, which was never going to be the case. Whereas my motivation was that I was completely ill-equipped to be able to support my family should anything happen to my husband, and I wanted to have complete the degree I'd started before I got married. We got no help so that, in fact, the first crash that was set up was um, set up by the women themselves in premises that they rented from the Plunkett Society. And it was only over a period of time that the university came on board and now it is entrenched as fully part of the services that are provided at the university. And just as Sandra says, everything for women has had to be fought for, especially when it comes to services and facilities throughout our history. 
I must say that it's one of the reasons that I've got a soft spot for Tim Shadbolt, the current mayor of Invercargill. He was an activist in the 60s and 70s, becoming a vital part of what was a left-wing progressive youth movement. A lot of us, when we started thinking about Vietnam, it was a war, but now we see it in terms of um, colonialisation, of imperialism and what it means. You know. And was apparently arrested 33 times during political protests. Now that's dedication. He was the only student politician at the time who fully supported us. Why do you think he had an interest in it? He was a fairly radical sort and, you know, we were sort of leading into the Vietnam War process, so, so people were questioning the given wisdom in society. Once you start examining this as a function of our society, Vietnam doesn't become just an issue anymore. It becomes a more or less a symbol of what is happening everywhere and continuing to happen. Now, remember in episode two where we met Kate Fulton, whose forebear was Marianne Mueller, the first suffragist in New Zealand? Well, Kate also experienced something very similar to Sandra, but in the area of science. I had my children at Cambridge University. When I was pregnant with my first son, I just had all these barriers to having a baby and having a career, and the college didn't want to support me being a mother as well as being a scientist which just sounds ludicrous, to be honest. Especially now that there are so many women who happen to be mothers in the workforce, including myself, and not to mention our own Prime Minister. Now that's something that definitely shows how far we've come, but I wonder if some of those old attitudes still prevail. That is hopefully not the case now, and it's, um, it's wonderful to see like Jacinda Ardern having a baby as a Prime Minister, but certainly my experience when I'd been at Cambridge University was that they wouldn't give me maternity pay and they wouldn't provide me with couples accommodation because I wasn't married. And from there, she was confronted with a flow-on of more and more barriers that were impossible to penetrate. I was the first woman at my college to be studying for my PhD to have a baby. I did a PhD in biochemistry and uh, protein folding. I had been given a scholarship which I'd been told was aligned with a Medical Research Council scholarship, which gave maternity pay, and then they said, oh, no, you don't get maternity pay. And so there was just lots and lots of battles along the way, and childcare was incredibly expensive in England at the time. I came back to New Zealand for a year, and then I went back and uh, worked with some of the other members of the college to set up this first creche. I think the Generation X kids were told they can do anything and particularly women you know that you know we fought for women's rights and we have equality and you can have a career and you can have children and that's your right but when it comes to the crunch you're often up against a workplace environment which constantly puts barriers in place to making that happen so I think some of us have been fighting these battles for decades on our own and we've been making small steps but suddenly the rest of the world's catching up and that's really great. But why has it been so hard to move forward? Why has it taken so long? Part of it comes down to how gender roles and identity are taught from the day we start school and maybe even beforehand. Back to history curator Katie Cooper again toys that um, were available to young New Zealanders have also had a role in their education. 
This is a little um, toy cooking set from the 1940s. This was used by a woman named Diane Bright when she was about six or seven. And it's just a little tin oven. It even came with a baking dish, a cake tin and pans. But that's not all. This thing actually worked. She would get cotton wool and methylated spirits and light a fire in this oven and then she used one of the pots to make some veg- cook some vegetables or something like that. You know, this is part of a sort of informal education that reinforced what um, Diane would later learn at school, which was that cooking was her job and that that's, that's what she should be doing. So we're interested in how these sorts of um, toys and play items also kind of feed into that narrative and teach. This is where Lego came to save the day and a particular Lego set from 2015. It features three female figures. They're all scientists, so one's an astronomer, one's a paleontologist and one's a chemist. And this was released in response to some criticism of Lego that said that all of their um, female characters were just shown in sort of leisure activities or shopping or at the beach. They were never shown in work. They were never shown kind of doing a range of uh, activities, which, of course, women now now do. Because you you walk in these stores now and there's just whole aisles of pink rubbish for girls. Yep, Sandra Coney has a very strong opinion about gendered toys too. Which is totally about training them in redundant domestic roles. I mean, we've just talked at length about the fact that there's a far more sharing of these roles now, but you won't find any of that stuff in the boys' aisle. Here are a couple of adverts from YouTube. And note the light and playful music for the girls' toys and the wording used in the boys' toy advert. Join in the fun with Cavaz! Tickle their tummies to hear them giggle. With all new Transformers Nectar, I'm in control. The newest Transformers figures have arrived. But how can this be happening at a time when we know that gendered roles or the gendered nature of even you know, the way people see sexuality now is changing. How is it that things are kind of reverting back to this is for boys, this is for girls, and girls need to learn how to cook when on MasterChef, there are men that are winning the competition? Well, I think this is a question for today's sort of young people and young parents because the stereotyping of children at a very, very early age is really reprehensible. And I guess that's the thing. If you fight for change and things revert back, you'd have to wonder what it was all really for. It was a big focus of the feminist movements. It was about how children were dressed. It was how they played. We had a big campaign about children's books, and I think that was very successful. We celebrated people like Pippi Longstockings and others that were active girl role models. But within New Zealand, the um, publishers of children's books... I mean, they were very aware and of avoiding sexual stereotyping. But I think it is a question for today's parents, and I don't see it as being questioned. My partner, who kind of went through all this as well, once seeing one of these fairy shops, he felt like throwing a brick for it. Now, he's a very responsible person, and he would never do that. Some of us who fought that battle and seen this come back again, only worse, are kind of horrified at it. This makes me question what the future is going to look like when it comes to the battle between the sexes. Because it's true that we learn about our roles in life from a young age and from many different places. For instance, as soon as my son started school, I struggled to get him to come into the women's changing room at the pool with me. 
I had a serious fight on my hands with something that had never even been an issue before, like it was invisible. So on that note, I had to go straight to the source, Miramar North School, to meet a class of five-year-olds. What sort of games do you feel like the boys like to play and what? They like to play different games than us and... More active? Do yeah, they like yeah. chasing or...? Yeah, chasing and active. Do you have a favourite colour? Pink. Purple. Oh, why do you like purple? Because it's dark. My favourite colour is blue and green. OK, why is that? It's because green has two different colours, which is still green, dark green and light green, and I, and I like blue it's because it has um, light blue and I like blue. The classroom is bright and colourful, with children's drawings and paintings hanging from the ceiling and displayed across a length of all four walls. Yeah. We've got a nature science table area and we've been... And this is Jane Bell, who teaches that class of five-year-olds. We've been looking at space this term and an inquiry's been on the solar system, so the artwork on the wall is around the sun, the moon and the earth. Even from here, I mean, I see a little kind of figure drawing of, you know, girl and a kind of triangle-shaped dress. <laughs> the boys don't do that. And I even remember drawing these kinds of pictures myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But they're already aware of that they're girls and becoming aware of who they are, where they fit within the class and all the language that goes on around you, being boys and girls. Like so, what sort of things? What sort of things do you uh, notice? Well, I think they notice they're physically different, so they don't want to be in the changing room because they're suddenly aware that they are a boy and... Uh, we do work hard on not having any of that gender mm. language. Say a boy says their favourite colour's pink, and there might be some boys in the class who find that very funny. So if that comes up, then that's an opportunity for a teacher to talk about colours not being gender-specific. And the children usually who are laughing and think it's a girl colour or it's a girl thing realise that, oh... Perhaps it's not. This wall is our maths wall, which is full of making patterns to five. How many ways could they make five just with counters? And that five isn't just three plus yeah. I mean, The boys will play with the doll's house just as much as the girls will. Do they play with it differently, though? But yeah, it depends on the child. But they might have animals in there and be barking and uh, more physical, mm. <laughs> where some of the boys might not. They'd like it all set up nice, not, you know, neatly and properly and play a proper game. When they're in the room and we're doing activities as a class, they're not aware because they're all doing what they like to do, what they choose to do, whether they're a boy or a girl. New Zealand's oh, been a pretty progressive yes. society, and we're a progressive school. This is Joyce Adam, the principal for Miramar North School, and Joyce says on the learning front that there are some gender differences between boys and girls. Research talks about boys and how their um, muscular development in their hands can um, take longer than girls to actually develop fully. That's one thing, you know, about getting them used to writing, as in handwriting and coordination, but also their hearing canals aren't developed till later than girls as well, which is rather, you know, rather odd when you think about it. You think we're all born physiologically the same anyway. There could be some 
background to boys not writing till a bit later on or not getting the hang of it or not listening till they're about eight or well, nine. Ju- well, just not ready. Yes. There's a whole um, issue around being ready. A lot of them just would rather be rolling around on the floor and playing dinosaurs. Which I think my five-year-old would prefer to be doing too. We'll come back to Jane and Joyce in a bit. I met up with Jane Major at Victoria University to discuss the concept around how gender is shaped in communication in the classroom. I work in teacher education in the School of Education. I've been a teacher educator for many years. I was originally a primary school teacher and then moved into teacher education in the 90s. And she's seen a lot of change in her time. My fields of interest in in teaching are primary literacy, um, English and um, English for speakers of other languages. And in her PhD, she focused on diverse children in in primary classrooms uh, and their identity construction. She collected lots of video and classroom data and from it came something she hadn't anticipated. The gender element became really obvious. So it became so obvious I couldn't ignore it. What were the obvious things? There was um, a really obvious difference in the way that the girls and the boys in my study interacted, thought about themselves, talked about themselves, the way their teachers talked about them. There were two particular children in the study. One was a little girl from Korea and the other a boy from China. In their own descriptions of themselves and in their peers and their teachers' descriptions of them, the little girl, let's call her Beth, she was the quintessential, sensible, good girl. Whereas, let's call our little boy Vincent, he was a silly boy by his own admission. So he was often in trouble for, you know, jumping off desks in the classroom and, and doing silly things. And so when I went to the literature, this, this idea of sensible girls and silly boys has been written about quite a lot. What was interesting is the way that culture came into the mix there because particularly girls from Asian backgrounds are frequently seen by teachers as being good students, compliant, well-behaved, hard-working and they achieve well. So they're kind of like the ideal student. When the culture and the gender discourses around being uh, an Asian girl came together for Beth, she was just really very much in that space both in the way she saw herself and in the way her teacher constructed her. And of course, as a Chinese New Zealander, I can totally relate. I was taught that in public and at school that I should sit quietly, do the work and never speak up. And when I did vocalise my thoughts, it wasn't received particularly well. I remember the teacher looking at me like, who is this child? Let me! Let me! Almost like she'd witnessed a scene in The Exorcist. Seriously, that's how dramatic it was. The teacher was horrified. Oh yeah, and I was also put in the top maths class. It was quickly discovered that I absolutely sucked at maths. That's what's problematic about these stereotypes or discourses. 
that we take them for granted and, and that they're not that problematic, but they have material implications and effects for children because teachers will treat children in accordance with their unconsciously held stereotypes or biases or beliefs about how children from different kinds of backgrounds and different genders It's kind of um, self-fulfilling prophecy type yeah, thing. Yeah, that's, right. mm. that's right. And research reveals that boys even get away with more. They are seen as active and assertive and need lots of physical activity to manage themselses and so the management allowances are made absolutely whereas if girls were to behave in similar ways as some of the silly boys that people would come down much more um, hard on them because they're not conforming to the gender discourse that girls are more naturally compliant and they behave better and they're better socialised and they're more mature and they've got better self-control. So that has implications for how they're treated. For example, boys who who aren't into lots of sport and who aren't busy, active, physical um, kids who love reading and writing and, and the arts and want to do those things can find that quite challenging to, to be that kind of boy because of the, the masculine discourse that suggests that that's not what proper boys do. And because then it's also feminised, right? Yes, Which is also right. kind of like a, a negative. So performing gender is very, very deeply embedded and performing gender in a way that is not part of the, the dominant discourse is very difficult. And, and similarly for girls who are very active, who, who aren't interested in reading, who want to be assertive, you know, you get the, the bossy little girl kind of label that gets put on girls who are assertive and stand up for themselves and, are, you know, talk back or whatever. Society um, doesn't like that, do they? No, they don't. And I think that, that gender is such a foundational construct or element of our identity and it's formed at such an early age. We're social from birth. You know, as parents we, we might say, oh but you know I let my daughters play with trucks and I let my sons play with dolls and I encourage that. And that may be true, but why do societal um, imperatives about how to be a good girl and a good boy really push us into, into these gender roles? There's quite a lot of evidence that would suggest that even very young children, preschoolers from, from two and three on, have a very clear sense of what it means to be a boy and a girl. Heading back to the kids at Miramar North School. Does anyone know the difference between a boy and a girl? They have longer hair. Girls have minges and boys have willies. Do you think girls are as good at doing different activities as boys, yes or no? Yes! You know, where there is um, no really gender bias in any mm. of the books that we choose, any of the reading books, mm. but there's no gender bias in the classroom environment itself. You know, there's just places to play. Do you think your mothers, when they cook and clean, do you think that's a job? Yes. yes. And do some of your dads do like cooking and cleaning at home or look after you? Yeah. A lot's changed since I started, but the core value of all children getting a great education and being treated equally hasn't. The way we do it and what we're more aware of and how more, and more inclusive of has probably changed. And with the material we get, the resources we get, that's they're different too. Not so gender-based 
lots, I mean, lots of different cultures in the book reading material or in the resource material. So whereas when I was at school, it was very definite Jane and John. But Miramar North School is also very multicultural. So how do schools handle or address cultural issues around that extra layer that sits on top of gender? Well, Joyce has first-hand experience. I was a migrant girl in Australia in 1969 when there were no other migrants around us. So I feel for the girls who actually come in to the school, and the boys as well, I try and understand what it is they're coming from. I didn't come from a traumatic background, quite the opposite, but many of our girls who um, have come from Colombia or South America or Iraq or Syria do come from that traumatic background. So it's understanding what they've seen. And then I think people like Red Cross who may bring them into the school have a really huge role to play in getting that understanding all the way through to the class teacher so they know what they're working with. Are they conscious? That, that there are all these different cultures in their room? Are they conscious that there's a difference between the male boy who may come from a Middle Eastern country compared to a female who comes from a Middle Eastern country? And we have those stark differences still. I want to know how we should look to combat the messages about gender. Should we be talking about it more or less? And how does the idea of gender fluidity impact on how we need to address the balance between the sexes? Back to Jay Major. There's the sense of blindness, if you like. You know, we talk about colour blindness, but perhaps there's also a gender blindness amongst teachers. Um, and it's not conscious, it's not deliberate, it's just part of that dominant discourse which is so deeply hidden. I think that one of the one of the problems in teacher education is that we've kind of stopped talking about gender. We've talked a lot in the last 20 years about diversity in terms of culture and language and other um, social justice issues like class and poverty, and which are all really, really important. But I think it's unfortunate that gender doesn't seem to be being talked about very much. And so teachers in teacher education, they're not having their beliefs and their ideas um, brought to the surface, challenged, their, their awareness is not being raised about the ongoing issues and potential problems of the way that gender operates in the classroom and has learning and teaching outcomes and impacts and implications. But things are changing for the better for girls and women and where they sit in the education system. There are less roadblocks in our way, thanks to the many women who fought for us to take our place across the sector and in the workforce as a whole. So now I think if I was five and I was going to go on this um, modern learning journey, I could be doing anything. I mean, my children, one's going to do science. Not even a, a thought that she shouldn't be doing science or that she wouldn't do science. So that's changed. Yeah. And there's so many more options, much more self-belief, I think, yes. particularly yeah. with girls, that I'm not sure my generation had as much of. You've been listening to Beyond Kate. Special thanks to to Papa, Natonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at Hutohu, the National Library of New Zealand. The studio engineer for this episode was Jason McClelland. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. 
and I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. Next time on Beyond Kate, the final episode looks at women in the workforce. If you'd like to subscribe or to listen to any of the other episodes, you can head to Podcast, Podbeam, Stitcher, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.